right. So it's just hit half of the hour. Um, so I am going to call this call to order and welcome everyone to the Community Matters Conference call Thursday, February 9th. Um, today we're talking about DIY communities, so tactical urbanism and a lighter, quicker, cheaper approach to community building. And we're here today with thanks to the good folks at the Orton Family Foundation who have made this and Community Matters possible. And today we're joined by Michael Leiden, the principal of the Street Plans Collaborative and co-author of Tactical Urbanism, and also Phil Myrick, Senior Vice President for the Pro Project for Public Spaces. My name is Bonnie, and I'm going to be moderating the call today. Um, and so just before we get started, I'm going to go over a few logistics. So we're expecting quite a lot of people on the call. Um, so I'd ask you just to put yourself on mute and um, and just keep on mute and, until I call your name. Um, and the way you can get your name called to get involved in the conversation is to access the Google Doc that we have that we're using to take collaborative notes and you will have received the link to that in the email. And jump into that and use that to, to write down any notes that um, that you think are of interest during the call, share any links, any questions that you have for our speakers today. And if you put your name against any of the notes, um, I'll be able to call you out and ask you to come off mute and ask your question and jump in and join the conversation. So if that makes sense to everyone, we will we will dive in. Um, what we're doing today, we're going to have some introductions from our speakers, and both Phil and Mike have some presentations for us today. Oh, so you can see that there is a link for a slide deck for Phil, which is a Google Doc presentation, and there's also a link for Mike's slides, which is a PDF that you can download. So if you're in front of a computer, I'd recommend that you jump onto those links right now and, and tee them up by to go through a, a little bit more of the introduction. So again, they're at the top of the, the document for today's Google Doc where we're taking collaborative notes. So today we are talking about a DIY community. Uh, and I'm just going to give you a little introduction to, to frame the conversation today. So. If, uh, hopefully you've all had a look at the blog post that introduced this, um, which started with who says you need a budget and a staff to turn your community around. The do-it-yourself era is upon us, from remodeling bathrooms to canning veggies, and the DIY spirit doesn't have to stop at community. This call today will focus on how to use techniques of tactical urbanism. We're talking small, lightweight, and often sort of surprising actions to accomplish big things in your town. We're going to hear about a range of ideas from chair bombing and parking day to the project for public spaces, lighter, quicker, cheaper approach, all of which can help you build community and liven up public spaces without breaking your back or the bank. So I'm really excited about today's call. Um, I'm super excited to hear from Phil and from Mike. And with that, I am going to hand it over to Phil to do an introduction and to run us through his slide deck. Thanks, Bonnie, uh, and hi, everybody. Thanks for joining the call. Thanks for having me on. Um, I do encourage you to click on that link and open up the Google presentation because I, you know, I can't imagine talking about this topic without showing some visuals because it really is, it's exciting to talk about it, but it's a lot more exciting to show and it's even more exciting to do. Um, and the first, and I'm going to scroll through these slides very quickly. There's there's more than 30 slides that I'm going to cover in about in under 10 minutes. So, um, 
but it, you know the the work that PPS uh, has been doing for um, many years. We're we're nonprofit. We're based in New York, but we work worldwide. Um, is called you know we call it placemaking. Um, we we have uh, you know about ten years ago we came up with eleven eleven principles of placemaking. And one of them, based on the work that we'd done with, you know, X number of communities, was this idea uh, that the community is the expert and the, the professionals are really resources to help the community achieve um, something, but the expertise really lies within the community. And then another principle was you're creating a place, not a design. And places require special handling, and they, they're different, and it's more participatory process than the typical design process. And then another principle was start with the petunias and do something fast-track, do, do experiments uh, to try out ideas and to grow a place iteratively, um, you know, working very fast. And, and this has now, for us, become a uh, sort of catchphrase, lighter, quicker, cheaper, and um, has become, you know, very compelling to communities in the last few years. Um, that's, that's, uh, I would say, sort of developing a life of its own. And for us, we, um, we sort of break it down into, you know, the types of pop-up, uh, amenities and art and, and, um, uh, and sort of, uh, comfortable places that you can do, events that start to activate a place that then takes on, um, more steps and, and a phased approach to develop a place. Um, interim public spaces that are, again have a sort of pop-up quality, and then even what we call light development, which is a type of development that's that's very um, that, that's a sort of scrappy development that's not traditional bricks and mortar, but is still development. And of course, um, our work is mainly with cities, uh, helping them create a better sense of place, a better quality of life in oftentimes the downtowns. And one one example that I've got here is San Bernardino, California, which on the first slide with the title San Bernardino, you see this parking lot. And this is a typical this is a typical situation in many downtowns. The city asked us, you know, can you make this parking lot into a great place? We need a heart and soul in our community. We need a more energetic downtown. And it was very challenging to come up with something to do. And this is one of our first seminal LQC projects. This is back in the 1980s, um, and I think it really is, it's, um, you know, one of the ones that really defined our work in this area. And the following slide shows the, the after, which this transformation happened in six months' time, literally, and it didn't actually involve a lot of, um, a lot of cost. Uh, uh, it actually, um, you know, was, was largely props and plantings and portable stuff. Uh, there were, you know, there was some uh, changes to the pavement in terms of pulling out some of the parking and planting grass. Um, if you can see the, you know, the whole approach to the street, um, you know, very fast track. The, 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 this is typical. A DOT is, is hesitant to make a major change to their streets. But if you say, well, let's just try it. Let's just experiment. And we'll just use paint, and we'll just do diagonal parking. We'll we'll paint bump outs. We won't build anything. And then you can try something. You can test it. You can see if the if the traffic becomes a nightmare. You can um, it's you haven't really lost anything. And so that's how we got the DOT to go ahead and and restripe this street, which really 
then showed everyone what an effective strategy that is for placemaking and for making a street feel better and, and actually accommodate more people. And it became all of a sudden a place for festivities and the Route 66 festival. Um, and then eventually they built it. And if you, if you drop down to slide 11, you can see the after, which was where the curbs were moved and the drains were moved and, you know, the more expensive approach was taken. But, you know, it was, it was a very easy yes to get to by the time they'd taken the experimental approach mm. first. Um, and then in New York City, we've been uh, doing this for the last, um, you know, 15, um, 16 years at least. The first one, uh, or an early one, was, was a, an intersection in um, Greenwich Village, which is still probably the only intersection in Manhattan with bump outs. But the only reason we got the OT to do it was to say it's an experiment, try it, uh, use paint, do these temporary painted uh, bump outs. This is um, slide 12. With, with floppy bollards, you know, the sort of um, sticky rubber bollards that define the bump outs as well as the paint. And they tried that for a year or two before they then built that, and you can see following the after. So what we find is that these experiments really enable a city to get comfortable with a concept that's, that's um, sort of pushing the envelope for them. Times Square, uh, you can see the existing and a proposed experiment that we, that we helped develop after doing a study of Times Square for the Times Square Alliance. And, um, and that study um, actually led it to further steps and further studies that then became a, um, an actual installation. You can see slide 15, what it was like, and then slide 16, the after yep. picture of people, you know, using the space, closing it temporarily, not committing to it, you know, paint, using paint, using bollards to block off areas. Uh, again, the idea of experimentation, and then uh, a couple of other after pictures. And then uh, the New York City DOT actually hired one of our people, Andy Wiley-Schwartz, to become an assistant city commissioner uh, for, for DOT, and now he's leading some of these other projects that you see that are popping up plazas, a little pop-up plaza program. Uh, this one at Columbus Circle creates a bike lane, a buffered bike lane, as well. And then the last project I want to talk about is, is in Buffalo, which is going on right now, which is, you know, this amazing story where, um, you know, on slide 20, you can see this, how great the Buffalo waterfront once was. It was, it was probably the best waterfront in the world. But the following slide shows that a vacant site, which is a huge vacant site in the downtown on the waterfront. And, and then I just want to show you a series of headlines. There's the, um, there's a, uh, an authority, a statewide authority called the Empire State Development Corporation um, that undertakes major development projects. Um, a subsidiary of them is active on the Buffalo waterfront. They're called the Erie Canal Harbor Development Corporation. And they had taken a sort of top-down traditional development approach to what to do with all these vacant areas on the waterfront in Buffalo, which was you know, impacting downtown in a negative way, having so much vacant land. Uh, but they did not have a very, you know, community-based approach. And their first attempt to develop that land, that site that you saw, was to pull in a major developer, Bath Pro Shops. And um, there was quite a bit of um, opposition, community opposition. If you scroll through these headlines, it starts out with, ECHDC is confident in the Bath Pro Shops, uh, 
this is going to be sort of a big box type of, you know, massive single-use retail um, drive-to location uh, destination on the waterfront. Uh, then, then the next headline that's in green there, taxpayers sue Bass, Bass Pro, ECHDC, and the Power Authority. So this was a community-led lawsuit to stop this project. So it became very controversial. Next headline, Bass Pro abandons plans for the waterfront. Um, so you can sort of imagine how this played out. And this, and the next, the next slide is this Imagining Buffalo's Waterfront forum that was organized, um, I, I guess about a year ago. Um, where the community, as soon as Bass Pro left, they sort of started to DIY their own ideas for what the waterfront could be. And they brought PPS Fred Kent in to a conference that they organized, and um, 600 people showed up, and, and we brought up this whole lighter, quicker, cheaper idea. And it became this way for the community and ECHDC to work together. Yes. And um, and and to and and it became a real community-led thing. You see the blog here, Buffalo Rising, it generated a great deal of excitement. Um, and then these these columns. It is now the People's Waterfront. Um, you know, PPS basically facilitated a whole process with the community. ECHDC was very flexible and open. Um, they loved the idea of lighter, quicker, cheaper. It gave them room to work with the community without making long-term um, high-investment commitments. Um, and the summer of transformation that happened, you can see the committees that the ECHDC um, took 100 people from the community in on different subcommittees, and we, PPS, facilitated those subcommittees. Um, and we came up with a whole lighter, quicker, cheaper plan. You can see one of the concept sketches for that waterfront site. And within... And I'm now on slide 33. That that was the first phase of improvement that was pretty um, pretty much just sort of the base the baseline. But then you start to see the Adirondack chairs. Um, they found a local um, uh, a local maker to produce these chairs, and then got different community groups to come in and paint them. And you can see those on site on um, slide 35. And then they did a whole lighter, quicker, cheaper sort of performance series over this past summer that um, included all kinds of local musical groups. And then they set up a, a, a shop where a local group um, that builds boats could come in and start using a space to build to do boat building on site. And they set up a taxi service. Um, the slide 38, you see. Finally, the the other amenities that all got put in in the space of about two months, um, you know, last late spring um, for the summer of 20, 2011, which include the banners, a beach with um, defined by you know blocks of of uh, granite, and even that little shack, uh, little that little food shack there uh, with the picnic tables was a pop up. Um, Destination that that we came up with with these these community members and these committees to um, start serving you know create a, a a stronger amenity. So I mean the success of this was really head turning and it happened faster than anybody could believe on a site that had been basically hamstrung for 30 years um, with the traditional development approaches and all of a sudden ECHDC is a big hero. Have it being seen as you know making a turnaround in their whole approach and 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 making a place 
um, in a space of a couple of months on the waterfront that is actually working. It's actually really drawing people every day, day in and day out, not just for events, but um, people are using that that site, and it's just a couple of acres at the most right now, but they have plans to expand. And now they have a way forward. They have a way forward and a method with their with their community, and they're looking at the sort of inc- next increments that will grow this place um, without without the necessarily having to make major decisions, but making minor ones. So that's my presentation. Terrific. Thank you so much, Phil. Um, that, was, that was great, really inspiring stories. Um, I'm going to hand directly over to Mike to, uh, to run through his great slide deck. So again, you can download that as a PDF from the Google Doc. Um, and so, Mike, do you want to take it away? Sure. Uh, hello, everybody. My name is Mike Leiden, and I am a principal of the Street Plants Collaborative. We're based out of uh, Miami, Florida, which is actually where I am right now, but I normally am also in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And I'm going to be talking about tactical urbanism, which is not dissimilar from lighter, quicker, cheaper. They're very much two movements in parallel with actually a lot of crossover. Um, tactical urbanism is uh, it was a booklet um, that we put together um, less than a year ago, actually, um, actually just over a year ago, which really documented a lot of these case studies of lighter, quicker, cheaper examples of things that were short-term actions that were actually creating long-term change. And we wanted to put together a series of case studies to share these with communities, with our um, you know, our clients, with our um, development partners, um, with our friends, our colleagues, et cetera. So that was a very exciting thing. Uh, one of the things that we do at Street Plans is a lot of research and a lot of advocacy work um, alongside a lot of our other more um, traditional planning and design projects. Um, and really the whole idea was to give information to people about how you can actually start changing spaces at a very small block level um, and how these, these things are being done across the country. And again, the idea is to focus on people and not on motor vehicles. Um, I'm going to go through my slideshow here very quickly. There's a lot of slides. I'm not going to go through every one of them. But I'll go through, if you start with slide five, um, I'll tell you a little bit about the big idea, and then we'll move through just a couple more slides, and I'll give you a couple case studies. Um, but there's several more examples in the slide deck, which you can explore um, later on your own time if you wish. Um, so tactical urbanism is kind of part of this larger umbrella of a research initiative our firm has going called Pattern Cities. And the idea is that these ideas that, get, uh, that come out of towns and cities are very innovative, and it usually does not take long for another city nearby in the region or even sometimes across the country to then mimic that idea or calibrate it to their own context. So we write a website called patterncities.com where we track the exchange of ideas um, not only across the country but across the world. Um, And then one such pattern which we started researching about a year and a half ago was um, something that we started calling tactical urbanism. Um, Now we've since gone way back into history and seen that this is not a a new trend really at all. Um, I think Phil gave us some good examples of that. There's certainly a whole lot of new energy um, that's being applied to our streets across the United States that was very tangible, um, very recognizable. So on slide seven, you'll see um, a few different images. One on the left there is volume one, which contained about 12 different tactics or case studies that we put together. And this is a, a document that you can download for free um, off the Internet. Um, we then this fall had a tactical urbanism salon where we brought practitioners of tactical urbanism from across the country to New York City to discuss this for one very long, intense, exciting day um, in a warehouse space in Queens. 
And we are currently now just finishing up Tactical Urbanism Volume 2, which will give you 12 additional case studies for a total of 24. and goes a bit more into the history and theory and ideas behind why this movement is becoming so popular. Um, if I was going to sum it up, um, I would probably hand the reins over to a professor named Nabil Hamdi. This is slide number eight. This is a really fantastic quote from a book that he wrote in 2004. He says, it is about getting it right for now and at the same time being tactical and strategic about later. It's about disturbing the order of things in the interest of change. And I think Phil just gave us a wonderful case study on how that's being applied in Buffalo um, in that, you know, just getting something done on the ground, visible, um, that's exciting to people really starts to coalesce support and um, an understanding of the vision for the long term. Um, so again, there in slide nine, you'll see a whole list of the new tactics, which will be coming out probably at the end of next week with our new publication. Um, I want to step back and think about why this is happening um, at such rapid speed in the last you know, two or three years. Um, you'll note that a lot of the case studies that are in this presentation uh, are very, very new. Um, and so what I've been looking at is three converging trends. Um, one is certainly the economy with the challenges that we've had um, as a country the past three or four years. There's really been a need to keep working on projects, keep making changes, but do so in a much cheaper way. Um, you know, and then the second thing is demographics. You're seeing towns and cities across the country continue to revitalize um, in spite of the recession. In fact, you know, that might be part of the reason why towns are thriving and cities are, town are thriving is that there's opportunities to live um, more densely, more close together, closer to work. Um, these, you know, to rent apartments, all these things add up to people coming back into urban neighborhoods. And what you're finding is a large portion of these people tend to be quite well-educated and have jobs and have free time on their hands. And so they're starting to work together to improve urban neighborhoods um, and towns across the country. And then three, it's really the advent of the um, Web 2.0 movement with things like Twitter and Facebook and, and YouTube and all those different tools that we have that allows us to share ideas. So now when it used to take just a few weeks or, you know, sorry, a couple of years, three years, five years, whatever, for ideas to go from place to place, uh, those patterns would, would basically proliferate. Now it can take three to five days. Um, so we're seeing things pop up in Dallas and soon get done in San Francisco, which then happened in New York, which moved to smaller towns across the country, which is extremely exciting. So there's ways to share our accomplishments, our ideas, and our tactics together. And... Tactical urbanism is really built on the foundation of five key characteristics. Um, one of those is certainly vision. And, and by the way, I'm on slide number 11 right now. Um, it's really about having vision, so really taking a deliberate and phased approach um, to making change. Um, there's context. It's really thinking about, okay, where do improvements need to be made? How can we do it? Who's going to do it? And most often it's at a very, very local, block-level, neighborhood-level scale. Um, Agility is really about not having to commit too much funding, too much time, too much political will, and having realistic expectations. Um, and then, of course, it's value. So by putting in uh, very little time, very little money, um, there's oftentimes you're finding, uh, you know, many cases that you'll see in the case studies, there's a very high reward that comes with these projects. So the low risk with the high reward creates a lot of value. Uh, and finally, and perhaps might, this might be the most important thing, is community. Uh, we find that um, no matter if these projects stick around for three days, three months, or three years, what you, you find these things uh, bring together is people and building social capital. And that in and of itself can help make longer-term change. Um, so we're very excited by the kind of things that, um, the kind of relationships that get created out of uh, tactical organism-type intervention. Um, slide number 12 shows just a very um, 
sketch of this continuum, which is now made more permanent in slide 13. Um, so a lot of the tactics oftentimes start as being unsanctioned. Uh, the government doesn't get involved. It's not done by necessarily an official organization. So they start really from the bottom up, from, from neighbors, from individuals, from friends, um, from family members, et cetera, getting together and saying, what can we do to make this street better, this block better, this, um, this uh, parking lot better, et cetera. And then you find on the other end of the spectrum, you see cities now taking the lead. Um, in New York City, San Francisco are some of the leaders in this movement, and we're seeing a lot of those ideas come from both coasts into the heart of the country, uh, where a lot of the tactics are being applied uh, in places that you, know, you wouldn't have thought these things to happen even just six months ago. And so as we run through a lot of these examples, I always start with the unsanctioned and show how they kind of the tactics can move from the unsanctioned along the continuum to being um, fully sanctioned in the end. Um, so a good example of that is if you turn to um, number 19, slide number 19, is a tactic called chair bombing. And you'll see a series of pictures here that depict um, actually a couple of PPS employees, friends of mine uh, who work with Phil, and some others got together and decided to reclaim some shipping pallets and basically turn them into uh, chairs and drop them into spaces in the public realm that need additional seating. So as you go through the slides, one, two, three, and four, um, slide 22 shows uh, the immediate after effect of when these chairs were placed next to this coffee shop in Brooklyn. And if you go to slide 23, um, what that inspired the local coffee shop to do is put permanent seating out front. Uh, this is definitely a community gathering space, and from going to a very temporary short-term intervention, there's now permanent seating. Now, this is a very, very small-scale example, um, but if I can have you flip through um, to the Tether Block Project, which is uh, slide 27. Um, Tether Block is something that actually started in Dallas. It's probably quite well-known among some people on this call. Uh, when a group of activists, activists get together, find an underutilized block, and decide to take it over for the weekend. And as you flip through, you see that bike lanes uh, temporarily are painted using washable paint. Um, planters are brought out. Uh, tents, businesses that are empty. Uh, people get permission to use those buildings for temporary storefronts. Um, it's really about showing the potential of our neighborhoods, especially our commercial streets. And if you get to slide number 33, you'll see that the, the event was so compelling for the actual city of Fort Worth that they um, went to the, this is actually, this um, intervention was done on a state road, so the city went to the state DOT and said, look, we'd like to take ownership back, um, have jurisdiction back on this street, and we want to make changes to this to be made permanent. And so you see bike lanes, um, new storefronts have popped up. Um, they've really moved in an official way to making change that's long-lasting. And so there, again, you're seeing a citizen-driven, bottom-up, short-term action lead to a much longer-term change, um, at, the, at the sort of city's government level. And I'll just go over two more quick examples. Slide 34 is a project uh, that we worked on in Oyster Bay. Um, it was actually for a design competition um, based on redesigning the suburbs in Long Island. And a group of us decided, well, instead of actually just creating a bunch of fancy drawings, why don't we go out and actually make some change on the ground um, on, the, on the street? And so we found a partnership in the uh, Oyster Bay Main Street Association um, we're great partners for us, and we teamed up with them. As you go through slide 35, um, we made just a bunch of interventions in a better block type style. Um, there's vacant buildings that we put uh, pop-up shops in, had yoga going on. We brought on temporary farmers market, 
Um, there's movies being projected on buildings at night. Um, there's a whole range of activities. And uh, lo and behold, uh, what happened was that the community in about a year's time um, was able to use the support that was brought together for this weekend and build on those relationships. And some of the um, entrepreneurs in the town saw the potential and started investing in this, this block. And so now the farmer's market has been made permanent. Um, the vacant storefronts are now filled with a restaurant and uh, two new businesses. Um, Billy Joel, who actually attended the um, the whole weekend, the whole um, the whole event, brought his antique motorcycle collection and filled one of his big empty warehouse spaces with his collection, which you know draws tourists from around the region. Um, and the town's now ready to make more permanent changes with some of the ideas that we put forth. So you're seeing again the very short term lead to the long term. And finally, um, if you flip through to slide number 43, this is an- another exciting initiative out of Portland, Oregon, called Depaving. And this started, again, as a, a community-oriented, um, um, action-oriented event where neighbors got together and decided that one of the parking lots um, had too much asphalt in their neighborhood. So they just started to rip it up one weekend and decided to plant a community garden in its place. And what's really exciting and interesting about this is that um, other people in other neighborhoods heard about it and saw their opportunities to do the same. So if you flip to slide 44, um, you'll see that the movement was launched in 2006. Um, since then, they've um, removed many, many sections of parking lots, and um, they, uh, a couple of years after starting to do this, got a lot of support from the city. And so the city started to fund them, and they turned the, the loose organization into a, an official nonprofit, which now um, puts that as a website. It puts out manuals on how to do this, provides technical expertise to, to neighbors and groups in the city of Portland itself. And it's gone so far that the Environmental Protection Agency also funds this program at a federal level, and it's now moving its way into other cities. So that's one of the best, uh, you know, examples we have of tactical urbanism going, again, from the short-term and informal to the longer-term, more organized, um, you know, nonprofit-based and federal government-funded programs. Um, so with all that, I'll let you flip through some of the rest. Um, on your own time, and we can have a discussion. Terrific! Thanks so much, Mike. That was uh, that was a really great overview of some of the projects you've been involved in, and also kind of giving a really great background to some of these um, these really terrific projects across the country. Um, I'm just going to do a couple of little um, logistical things. If uh, you, if you have questions, please type them into the Google Doc. Don't forget to write your name so that I can call on you. Um, and and bring you into to the conversation to talk to these guys. Um, and also, if you have not already, please uh, just put yourself on mute so we're not getting a bunch of background noise um, so we can hear everyone. So, amazing overview from both Phil and Mike. Um, and I'm seeing some really great questions come into the document. And I wanted to call on Josh. Um, he's been adding some really great stuff. Um, and really, I think the the most interesting part of this to kick it off is to maybe get you guys to talk a little more about um, the organizing element of this work. So so much of it relies on bringing communities together to, to work together. And can you, um, and Phil, maybe you want to kick us off with some comments on that around um, the work that you've been involved with, how that kind of generates, how you can make it happen faster. Um, you talk a little bit about the organizing element. And Josh, if you're on the line, um, try to... Uh, Try to jump in when you can. Uh, yeah, I'm here. 
Excellent. Phil, do you want to do you want to give us a little info about um, community organizing and tactical urbanism? You may have yourself on mute because we can't hear you. And if we've lost Phil, maybe Mike, you want to jump in? <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> one of the uh, organizational elements that we find uh, so compelling is that. Um, am I? Am I? Can, can you hear me now? Oh, there you are, Phil. Go ahead. Sorry, it was a keystroke thing. Uh, but you know, one of the things that we notice that um, if, if you didn't notice already. The lighter, quicker, cheaper stuff that PPS has has been doing is a little bit different from the tactical urbanism in as much as we are trying to work primarily, we're trying to help cities get over a hump, and so our 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 um, we're working with communities, but we're working through primarily city government or in some cases a downtown association. Um, but it's it's through an organized effort, and so our work is really trying to help create um, agency change and, and new habits and new culture within city government. And this approach really sort of unleashes energy within the city, within city staff who get really excited and want to start doing something, and, and we, you know, help them um, make that happen. Mike's, uh, the, the, the tactical urbanism stuff that Mike's, and, and Better Block and um, Orash Karazad, who's on our staff, are all doing is really the DIY stuff where they actually go out and start doing it and you know organize their friends and it has a bit more of a guerrilla aspect, although many times it's sanctioned and and they're invited in. So um, I think you know when we talk about how do you how do you get it how do you get something organized to go forward, our answer is quite different. And you should probably get an answer from both of us. But ours is really, you know, the thing that's remarkable is how many cities now are asking for this. The, the word has gotten out there. This, is, this was an idea that we struggled for years to sort of get people to try. And, you know, every tenth city that we worked with would, would do an experimental project with us. Um, but, of course, many of them loved it because they didn't have to spend a lot of money. And like that project in San Bernardino, they could test like a traffic design idea without spending any money. In Littleton, uh, New Hampshire, we did fake bump outs using rubber curbs and mulch. And then, you know, we got the complaints on what the design was so we could just bend the rubber in a different way and actually sort of tweak the design on site uh, before, you know, anybody even went to an engineer to, to really do the final design. So, um, Mike, why don't you talk more about your, you know, how, how you get something to happen that's more that sort of DIY basis. Sure. Well, I, I will um, just push back a little bit and say that I gave a lot of DIY examples, but we're seeing actually developers lead these, these tactical urbanism projects in cities as yeah. well. So, it's, again, that whole range and spectrum of different actors uh, making changes um, in the short term. So um, in terms of getting something like the Better Block or the Oyster Bay project off the ground, what's really exciting about that is that you have an opportunity to bring together a lot of organizations, individuals, groups that maybe haven't worked together um, in either quite some time or at all. So specifically in the town of Oyster Bay, um, you had the Railroad Museum, you had landscape um, businesses donating materials, you had the Main Street Association, the Town Hall, um, local restaurants, actors, everyone coming to 
the table to make this thing happen in over the course of 48 hours. And, you know, new relationships are built off of this or old ones rekindled and people start to understand that, look, what we can pull off in just 48 hours and then look what the impact has been. Um, the Main Street director, um, you know, he hasn't done any technical um, analysis of this yet, but his estimate has been about $1 million impact to the town based on the new businesses and the museum and the farmer's market, et cetera. Um, but again, what it comes down to is bringing some um, disparate um, people together to work on these things builds um, social capital moving forward to make longer-term changes and get the support for that. Um, so it does really help to break down the silos in a sort of unconventional and, and quite frankly, a really fun way. Um, so that's just one, I guess, a good example of, of organizing. Um, but in a more technical sense, um, again, the social media helps with this. So um, you know, if you've got you know, people following your organization or um, your planning department or just yourself as an individual, um, using social media to bring people together over the course of a weekend um, can be a really quick and easy and exciting way to, to bring groups together and to share different ideas, um, not just within your own neighborhood, uh, but across the city or you know across your region. And that's where you start seeing these patterns come into play where you figure out that one town is doing one thing and then the next town can kind of learn from that and people get excited and want to do the same thing. And so the ideas spread very quickly um, with those organizing techniques. Would Thanks, you mind, that's, uh, a, that's great overview. Josh, I, I wanted to call you out and see if you wanted to um, to add any more to that. It sounds like you're doing a lot of work in this area. Uh, yes, I was wondering if maybe you could uh, pick out a particular example and kind of walk through the process. I mean, I, I, I know that I, uh, you guys have come and work in different cities, so talk about how you enter the city. I mean, you don't have these social networks that you have in your hometown. So how do you identify... Uh, the particular movers and shakers, how do you identify certain people with certain skills, certain resources, kind of work from that angle? Mike, I think he's asking you probably. Um, well, you know, and I'll start by saying in a lot of ways what we document with tactical urbanism is um, just documenting others who have gone through this. And so I think for us to come into a community and identify all the right stakeholders is not an easy thing to do. Um, if we have a partner very much on the, on the ground, um, that's essential. So for us, in, again, in Oyster Bay, that was the Main Street Association, who had a much better sense of who the players were, who the different groups were that were getting along together or were not getting along together, and what the um, potential um, hurdles would be that we'd have to get over. Um, so if you know, we come in from away, um, we really have to uh, know on the ground who to work with very quickly. Um, but, you know, if you do a quick search um, with, you know, different social media platforms, you can find people who are tweeting or posting or, t you know, talking about a lot of these sort of similar issues. You know, urbanists have a way of identifying, self-identifying themselves or what Phil's organization calls the zealous nuts, uh, those people who really like to be involved in their community. Um, so finding those folks are, is really uh, essential to getting um, some early support and tapping into their network of people so you can rally the different groups of people and organizations together. And to start the process, you really have to have an idea. You have to identify, you know, identify the problem. You know, what is the issue here? Um, is it that cars are going too fast? Is it that we don't know our neighbors? Is it that we don't have access to healthy food? You know, all these different things um, come up in a lot of these discussions. And a lot of times you can address a lot of these issues at once through one or two different types of interventions. Um, but you really have to find the problem first, identify that, and figure out who are the right people to rally around this issue um, as a group 
And then you have to start organizing in that manner. Um, and then with any luck, you'll bring together uh, lots of different types of people and organizations to make it happen. There's a great example in um, Newcastle, Australia, called Renew Newcastle, um, which was put together by Marcus Westbury. And if you Google Westbury, W-E-S-T-B-U-R-Y, Marcus and Newcastle, you'll you'll find resources. But it's, it goes to one of your other questions, I think, Josh, about whether there's economic data about these projects having added um, economic activity to the area. And this one was really in a dying downtown with the 80% vacancy rate, and it was directly adding economic value. And the way that he tapped into his community was actually um, through all the methods that Mike just mentioned, but also through Etsy, the website, and um, it was focused on pop-up stores and galleries and art projects um, using all of these vacant uh, stores that were, you know, along a contiguous line of blocks. So um, over the period of a couple of years, they, they found so many people, young people mostly, who were making their own stuff through Etsy, uh, even, you know, in Newcastle, Australia, that they could fill three blocks, I think it was, of both sides of the street in these formerly vacant storefronts. And they, of course, had a lot of other work to do. They had to broker agreements with the building owners to cover the liability and that kind of thing. They wound up starting a nonprofit organization. But it was just amazing how many people were sort of in um, – in that community, but invisible um, until you started looking. And, and this is what I tell most cities is that, you know, Newcastle, Australia is not special. They're not any different than, you know, any other city. There are, you know, probably thousands of of people, particularly young people, particularly creative people, who if, if you start, uh, you let it be known that, they are welcome to participate in a project of this kind or to set up a short-term inexpensive um, presence in a vacant storefront in a downtown, they will answer the call and they will come running. Terrific. Um, and I, I love personally love the example of Newcastle because that's very near where I'm from. Um, so... Uh, Mike, you talk about three converging trends, this idea of uh, the challenging economy, changing demographics, and acceleration of the social web. I'm really interested in um, maybe if you can talk a little bit more about um, how those three things are working together. And Phil, I'd be interested to get your perspective on that and if you're seeing changes in the work that you guys have been doing over time with this kind of changing of these trends. Um, yeah, I mean, again, the a little bit deeper into the economics of it, um, you know, as, as Phil has pointed out too, that um, there's just not a lot of money around right now to make changes. And um, what I'm seeing on a demographic perspective, not just with people moving into neighborhoods and, and, and things like that and changing demographics in cities, but changing demographics in planning and engineering departments. You know, you're seeing... I'm seeing at least in my in my practice a lot more people who are about my age. You know, they're about um, 30 years old, and they're very um, excited and have a lot of energy and want to be making changes. And a lot of times, there's still a lot of um, red tape, standards, rules, uh, laws, things that really block up the way of making change. And so, what 
tactical urbanism does is provides this sort of relief valve or, um, as TPS often says, a bureaucracy-free zone where, you know, just temporarily let's just, you know, suspend the rules for the weekend and just let something happen. And if you let, you know, people even at the municipal level as bureaucrats or planners or whatnot, to take hold of that idea, people get really excited to make those changes. Um, so that is a really, you know, quick way is finding um, who in city government is, is like-minded and on these issues. How can we work with them to make some of these changes? Um, so that kind of speaks to the fact that, you know, if you are a, a planner and your, your town is, is struggling and you want to make these changes but you don't see the state funds, you don't see the local funds, you know, to make it happen, um, well, here's an opportunity to maybe get creative and do something very, very much on the cheap. Um, again, paint, cones, um, you know, benches, these things that can be put together and sourced over the course of a couple of days um, can make for some, some long-lasting impressions on people, and it's very exciting. Um, and so that demographic change, too, you know, uh, maybe the, the people in these neighborhoods want to make change in their own streets, their own blocks, and they just need that prompt um, and those examples to follow, and that's really where the social media comes in. Um, you know, I, I just can't imagine um, people sharing the ideas that they're sharing now, even five years ago. Uh, the fact that the, the guys and, and girls in, in Dallas who did Build a Better Block in 2010, that went so viral so quickly, um, it was just absolutely incredible. And, you know, to, a few weeks later, we were doing the same thing with a town in Oyster Bay. Um, the, the tactical manual itself uh, was posted uh, in April of last year online as a free download, and within just uh, seven or eight weeks, it maximized our free download allowance on the program script. So we had uh, 10,000 downloads in less than two months. So we had to change uh, providers and, and, and really figure that out, but that shows you the power of, of exchanging ideas via the web. And so that means to me that 10,000 people potentially got exposed to um, the different ideas that are in this guide, which are ideas that are sourced from around the country. Um, so again, the way that we can share things, ideas, tactics, information, make videos of it, so it's you know you can just really mimic it, um, is really really powerful stuff. That's terrific, Mike. Um, George Bolden, I can see a great question from you in the document here. Do you want to jump on the line? Um, you're talking about affecting change in communities. Do you want to talk to Phil, Mike? Still on the line, George. If, uh, if you're speaking, we can't hear you. You might need to take yourself off mute. I'm still here. Excellent. Go ahead. Oh, I was just asking uh, how these tactics and strategies could be applied to uh, the issues of uh, low-income housing and homelessness. So you're talking about a really uh, long-term ingrained issue in, in some communities and if there are ways that we could look at using these kind of short, short-term short catalyst projects to make some changes long-term. Does that sound right? That's right. In other words, I mean, are there creative ways that we can involve, let's say, the arts community and nonprofits, uh, planners and others come together to at least, like you said, for a weekend, raise awareness that then generates ongoing, continuous change that restructures the city or the urban spaces so that everyone can have a place to live? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. There's a um, there's the equivalent in terms of retail and, and development uh, 
um, which is that, um, for example, there's many projects now that are done lighter, quicker, cheaper that are um, using temporary structures, whether they're shipping containers that have been sort of retrofitted to put a shop in it or gallery or um, a boat builder, or whether they're stick frames that pop up against the back, a blank wall um, to sort of cover it with something else. And we have some great examples of, of this kind of work. Um, um, but, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the equivalent of, of housing popping up, it would be one thing to look at. And of course, certainly in, um, in certain parts of the world when there's a disaster, you pop up housing. I remember working on a project in Armenia. One of our letter quicker, cheaper projects actually could only happen in a, a big square in Gumri, Armenia after an earthquake once the um, shipping container housing had been cleared away because of temporary housing, temporary shelter for people. So there are actually um, even fairly high-rise buildings that have been done through shipping containers that occupy vacant sites um, that may you know, be a retail presence or other presence. Um, in Mexico, the work of Teddy Cruz, I think of, um, they, they have... Um, Look at modular ways to sort of occupy sites and provide, you know, not just the retail, but the, the housing and getting people involved in, in actually building their own housing. Um, so through volunteer efforts towards ownership, and, you know, and in, in certainly in much of the developing world, you know, the majority of the population lives in what we call, you know, an acute way pop up here. It's not cute when you're living in a, you know, a slum or a favela that was popped up overnight because you have no other choice and, you know, neighborhoods of a million people appear in very short time in that way in major cities around the world. So, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a very interesting, challenging question for, you know, how do we do that here? Thanks so much, Phil. And, you know, just a, a terrific uh, question, and I think if anyone has any additional comments on that, uh, if you'd like to put it in the Google Doc, we'll be making that available to everyone after the call. Um, we're also trying something a little different with these calls these days. Uh, so if you've joined us before, this might be a little bit new. Um, I'm going to hand over to Rebecca from the Orton Family Foundation. And uh, what, we're, what we're doing is offering an opportunity if people are interested to join a second call on this topic and really start to dig into some of the details that are um, that you might need to discuss or be interested in talking about for um, for a specific project that you're working on. So I'll let Becca um, say hi and give you a little introduction to this part of the, the call. Yeah, great. Thanks, Bonnie, and thanks to everybody for registering. There's so much interest in this topic again, and we're really excited to have you all on the line. And as Bonnie mentioned, we've been Hosting this call series for a while, it's been a great way to connect with all of you and have a conversation about issues like this, but we really want to take it one step further and see if we can help those of you who are actually working on projects or looking to work on projects on the ground. So this is a little bit of an experiment for us. We're going to offer one follow-up call on this topic. It'll be Thursday, February 23rd, same time, two weeks from today. When I send around a follow-up email to all of you with podcasts from today's call, I'll also include a link to a registration form. 
So if you are working on a project or you really want to start a DIY community, tactical urbanism, lighter, quicker, keeper kind of project, we invite you to register for that call. Join us in a couple of weeks. And it's going to be a pretty different conversation, really applied. So it'll be a chance for you to tell the story of what you're working on and get help with the specific challenges and needs that you have making something happen on the ground. And we don't know what will happen after that. We're really open to ideas. So if there's a group that comes together and wants to stay connected, we'll do our best to make that happen and help continue to get you the resources you need to do all the great work you're doing. Uh, so again, watch for an email from me. You can email me at rstone at orton.org if you have ideas or questions as well, or even leave a comment in this document, and we'll pick it up. Thanks, Bonnie. Great. Thanks, Coco. Um, so, yeah, if, uh, if you have a project in mind or you're working on something already, um, highly recommend jumping back into this conversation and, and digging into some of the details. So before we wrap up today, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, what I would like to do is, is just ask Mike and Bill to um, have a, a quick think, and um, I'm going to put them on the spot here and ask them um, top three things for people um, when they hang up from this call today what are the top three things that uh, people could go off and do in their own communities to really get something like this started or make some change happen? Um, Phil, do you want to kick us off? Well, how about we share that uh, different approaches? Like I would, uh, I'll go the the sort of like how you can start to change city government and Mike, you you can take it any way you want, but you might be more like the how I can do this at home. Um, but I would say. You know, what I've noticed is that uh, government leaders and all kinds of civic leaders um, working especially in downtowns are just the the interest in, uh, you know, doing projects and a process like this is exploding. The only people who aren't interested in it are the people who don't know about it. So, you know, I would say um, start to send... Uh, these presentations and visuals to the people who, you know, represent you in in particularly towns and cities, the more urbanized places, and I can certainly provide a a more cleaned up presentation that has a higher resolution of photos. Uh, but I think just you know, the this this thing, as Mike pointed out, is already an idea that's going viral. But what I've found is that the you know the Older generation of decision makers in cities, it's still big news to them. It's big news, it's news to most people, but that they are really, really keyed in on it as soon as they hear about it. So that would be, that would be one recommendation. Terrific. And, uh, and Mike, do you have something to close this with? Sure. Um, you know, leaders have to lead, whether you are in, in government or just a, someone who lives on your block and is interested in making change. Uh, nothing gets to happen unless you actually go out and do it and, and sort of take the reins. And so in all the case studies that we have, you know, there might be a, a group of people that are identified, whether it's an organization or a city government or a neighborhood group, but it's always one or two people who really kind of push on these things. And so um, it takes, uh, for a lot of people, you got to get over a little bit of a hump uh, to think about going out in the middle of your street and physically making a change. But if you're not afraid to do it and you're not afraid to involve your friends and neighbors and, and colleagues, then I think you can see really great results. And if nothing for no other reason than just building relationships and social capital. Um, so really it's about getting out there in your neighborhood, caring about it, and, and sharing your ideas and hopes for change. 
Um, you know, it may come off as a little bit preachy, and I apologize if it does, but time and time again when we see these case studies, that's what's happening on the ground. And you can find those those few individuals who really kind of uh, may shy away from taking credit, but they're the ones who help really instigate the change. Um, so I definitely would say that's one piece of advice is if you want to make change, you have to go out and do it, and no one else is going to do it for you necessarily. Another thing to do is what Buffalo did, which was, you know, they were frustrated by this vacant site, and they organized a community forum, and they found out that so many people were frustrated that 600 people showed up. And then when the LQC idea was introduced to those people, that, you know, was like a, a bolt of electricity through through that audience because they realized, you know, like Mike's saying, that they can personally participate in something that is that is very striking and and catalytic um and so you know organizing a a, a forum of that kind could be a great a, another great way to sort of step into this idea a little bit more yeah and that's exactly what we've been trying to do with the uh, the tactical urbanism salons we're going to be having another one in Philadelphia this spring as well as in Chicago so if you're anywhere near those cities um stay tuned for information that'll be coming out um Fairly soon we'll be making those announcements. But, again, yeah, sharing those ideas, um, not only just on the Internet, but obviously even more powerfully in conversations and face-to-face can really help bring new energy and new ideas back to wherever you're from, and we're trying to encourage that with our uh, sort of salon series. And, obviously, you can always drop a few Adirondack chairs in front of City Hall. <laughs> Make your point that way. <laughs> <laughs> and one, one final, can I say one more thing? Just about, it's about context. Um, as we've been studying this movement and then participating in our own ways um, for the past year and a half or so, we are finding that a lot of these tactics are being applied uh, very skillfully in small towns and in big cities. We're not seeing a lot of this stuff happening in uh, more conventional suburban um, areas. And I have some theories on that, um, largely based on the social and physical fabric, which allows you to um, undertake a lot of these uh, street-level interventions. Um, but if you have examples of things that you might be doing in a more suburban environment um, or have ideas for it, I mean, please get in touch. My, my contact information is in the back of that presentation, and we would love to know more about what's possible because all the examples we've been gathering are either hyper-urban or very um, well-formed small towns. So those areas in between we're um, very much interested in. Fantastic. Thanks, Mike. And I, I think uh, certainly with the, the crowd of people on this call, um, those small-town examples would be really useful for people to see. So I'm sure you can make some links to those available to Becca to share around and, and get in the document. Um, and so with that, folks, this has been a terrific call, um, really inspiring projects, and um, you make it sound very easy to just get started and roll up your sleeves and get in there, which is really awesome. Um, what we're going to do next is make the podcast of this call available to everyone that was on the call. It will be posted on the blog. Um, and then also the um, a PDF of this document where we've been taking all these notes. So if you do have additional questions, get them in there, um, and, and we'll make sure they get answered. And uh, if you have links or examples of projects that you'd like to share, again, Please put them in the document and we'll get them out to everyone so that um, we can do like Mike saying and get these ideas shared with 10,000 people. As um, I mentioned, and I'll just I'll finish up on this as I mentioned, if you would like to join a call and really get down into the nitty-gritty of a project that you're working on right now, um, 
make sure you respond to her email and, and let her know that you're available for that call. And so with that, I want to say a huge thank you to both Phil and Mike um, for all of their great presentation and information today. Um, and wish everyone on the call a very happy afternoon, and uh, we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you all.